Tony gave you a warning. Psalm 42. How do you prefer to take your psalm? Uh, you could curl up with it uh, like the Shakespeare sonnet or poem by Sylvia Platt. How about reciting it in church? Alternate verses, the priest saying one, the congregation saying the next. It's quite a nice way of uh, paying attention to it. Or listening to it sung by a cathedral choir, or setting by Thomas Tallis or Stanford, or according to, according to Jules, um, whose, whose presence is very considerable today, given him he's not here, according to Jules, a, a, a very beautiful setting of Psalm 42 by uh, Lionel Pike from Bristol. I wonder, you see, because Psalm 42 was written to be performed, to be sung. It's a masculine, whatever that was, uh, written for the director of music by the sons of Korah. These lads seem to have been responsible for about a dozen of the psalms. How did it sound, this Psalm 42? Were there instruments, uh, a solo singer, or a group, the sons of Korah themselves? I don't know. As it was sung, though, I wonder about the melody, or rather, the style of music. Now, there's something about that opening image of the deer thirsting for water that must have led to the song we've just sung. Um, it, it's an idyll of peaceful countryside and a clear stream. Day like this, maybe. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. It's, a, it's, it's a, an attractive image to pick up. It's easy to understand why it's popular. But though it's inspired by the psalm, I don't think the song fully paraphrases it. And while the melody suits the words of the song very nicely, it is too sweet for some of the sentiments expressed in the psalm itself. If you want a style of music for this Song. It's the blues. It's classic blues with call and response, where one phrase is a commentary on the next. I know it doesn't begin with, I woke up this morning, but it could have. <laughs> Strike me this way Psalm 42 includes the heartfelt desire for God, but the psalmist's real subject is a loss of confidence and the experience of internal conflict and doubt. In short, the psalm is about depression. Maybe not clinical depression, but a dark spiritual mood at least. And by the way, if you look it up, Psalms 43 and 44 continue in the same vein. Psalm 44 is even bleaker than 42. Uh, which is why it's not a chosen reading. It's, it's not for family listening, I'll tell you. So, depression. 
The psalmist intellectually appreciates God's wonders and what he has done in the past. But he's going through the agony of not hearing God, of God not seeming to come to order right now. God leaving him or her at the mercy of others' scorn. Now, there must have been in the psalmist's time, and there certainly are now, spiritual experiences like this that are not, that are way broader than Judaism or Christianity. People lay the same thankfulness, impatience, complaint, and despair that we hear here onto life, fortune, love, and even nature. And maybe this is why the psalm appeals to us across the centuries. It shows that we have misery, uncertainty, and anxiety in common with people whose lives we imagine to have been so hugely different from our modern age. Given then that we recognize the psalm's mood and experience, and we may well have shared them ourselves, does the psalm have anything to say about how we deal with them? For surely, not dealing with them might make the psalm less like blues and more like a Len Cohen song. What's the psalmist trying to do to get through this? He says things like this. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng, looking back at a good moment. My soul is downcast within me. Downcast comes up again and again. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Pisar, looking back again. Here we have somebody trying to talk themselves round geeing themselves up, counting their blessings, and even though they feel they're not getting any response right now, talking through the problem with God. They're working on their spiritual depression from within, as it were. It is, in a way, admirable. We should follow this example, except, I think, we shouldn't. In our time, let's say from the early 20th century onwards, our understanding of the human mind and its condition has advanced a little bit. Sigmund Freud and the many who came after him have given us huge insight and have shown us ways in which we can, with compassion and expertise, deal with mental distress, both temporary and long-lasting. And most of these approaches involve other people. So, I don't have any trouble imagining science saying to the sons of Korah, great diagnosis, lads, but poor prescription. No surprise, of course, that my own training as a psychologist and counsellor nudges me in this direction. But you may say, we're, not, we're talking about our relationship with God here, our difficulty in comprehending something beyond the human, uh, beyond the whirrings of synapses and neurons, beyond the symptoms and conditions that psychologists and psychiatrists can grasp. 
very well. Let's not think about psalmists or psychiatrists or psychoanalysts of this school or that. Let's go instead to our storyteller and teacher. Jesus was a communicator and motivator, but he was not a personal coach. He encouraged his friends and followers to share and to support each other, something that continued even more strongly after Pentecost. Of course, he spoke privately to individuals from time to time. There's a story of the woman at the well, of Nicodemus, for example, and Simon the Pharisee um, in today's Gospel reading. But mostly he taught groups of listeners, friends and followers, and I'll bet they debated with each other as well as with him. For sure, Jesus knew what it was to wrestle alone in the wilderness, literally and figuratively, and he needed his moments alone. Did he press us to become hermits or loners? He wanted us in tough times to rely on togetherness, mutual support and community. What did he say? Love one another. Here at St. Max, Tim and, and, and Jenny have encouraged us to think of church in Whitcomb as Family, use the word a lot, a shared enterprise, if you like, in which we seek the best for each other. In other words, love one another. So if we ever feel the way the psalm describes, there is someone we can let off steam to, or say the otherwise unsayable to. Or who will pray with us? There are conversations we can join. We have only to ask. But also, in tough times as in good, simply being together as we are now, in church, uplifts us, moves us in ways that are more oblique or tacit. As we share, as we will soon, the peace of Christ, when we manage to sing in time and in tune with our neighbour, when we share moments of silence or good music, when the baptism of a child touches us, when someone seems happy to see us, for goodness sake, or remembers how worried we've been about Jim or little Miranda in, oh, I don't know, shared puzzlement, the preacher's litany of nonsense. As these moments of being, at these moments of being together, the warmth we feel is love. And at these moments, crucially, the God we seek the God that the palmist, psalmist sought, that God tiptoes closer. Apropos Psalm 42 and its 
spiritual blues. A lonely, dark corner is surely no place to be when God seems far away. It is no good just praying harder and harder in order, finally, to extract the response you expect from God. Look around you. Perhaps faith in God means trust in other people's fellowship. Let others walk you to the streams of water for which you long.